Previously on Maverick. The crazy thing that was spreading through the rumor mill was that small house churches were growing and multiplying in some of the hardest to reach places in the world. It turned into the largest global survey of Muslim movements to Christ ever conducted. And what I discovered was that more Muslims had come to Christ than at any time in history. We are living in the time of potentially the greatest expansion of the kingdom of Jesus that has ever happened. Afghanistan, uh, Pakistan, and Western India are really almost synonymous with conflict. It's more significantly a place where uh, great civilizations push up against each other like tectonic plates. And the fact that these different civilizations are pressing against each other with their different languages and different uh, historical backgrounds and values has made this one of the most uh, conflicted and turbulent regions in the world. Most of the people have lived either in the midst of war and conflict or under the shadow and threat of war for their entire lives. And with that in mind, before we go any further, it's important to warn you that today's episode has some graphic content and might not be appropriate for young listeners. What we saw there, what what I experienced in the interviews and the stories there, they haunted me. Um, These were some of the most brutal and violent stories I'd heard in all my travels. So how do these cultures forged in turbulence hear and receive a message about peace? And who's willing to risk their lives to stand up for that message? This is Maverick, and today head to Western South Asia to see how the gospel is shaping this kill or be killed kind of region. My name is Todd Lafferty. I serve as the Executive Vice President at the International Mission Board. Been with the board about 32 years and spent a lot of our time in South Asia. Todd and his family first arrived in South Asia in 1992. They moved to a large city in the south of Pakistan called Karachi. Now, if you know anything about that region, you know that it took a certain kind of resolve to be a missionary in Karachi in the 90s. The night we landed, started Operation Cleanup, which was basically martial law. The uh, opposing Mahajirs to the government had um, called on their people to sell their TVs and buy guns. They were digging ditches across roads and setting up machine guns. And so uh, in the 90s, Karachi was a a violent city. Time Magazine called it the most violent city in the world during one of those years. Uh, Twice Americans were gunned down in the city. And I remember us being in a firefight one time out in the city and another time hitting the ground in our bedroom at night because there was a close, uh, close by uh, gunfire. There was a time where I was driving around the city wondering if I would be next. They would, these yellow taxis would be stolen and then gunmen would uh, cut off cars in traffic and just open fire. Uh, where our children went to school, we would drop them off, but. The, the armed gunman would have to get out and stand along a wall. And it, it looked like the wild, wild west sometimes with sawed off shotguns and AK-47s and 
uh, rifles and you name it. And although the 90s were particularly rough, this has been a violent and chaotic region for a long time. And it continues to be a place where people's lives are at risk. Which is why when David was looking for stories of what God was doing in the area, he needed to be careful. The interesting thing about the interviews that I ended up doing, although I'd been to Pakistan and and to Afghanistan on more than one occasion, I was told that if I went in and did interviews this time, that probably the people I interviewed would be arrested after I left. So in order to keep people safe, David didn't actually enter this region to conduct his research. I guess you could say he followed the rumors as far as he could, and then he got creative. So um, I traveled to a neighboring country, and it was from there that I was able to arrange interviews. They were gathered in a safe house in a major city where they could be somewhat anonymous from uh, the villages where they would be returning after the interviews. And one of those interviews was with a man named Ahmed. Ahmed was four years old when his father dropped him off at the madrasa. During the first six years of my education, I was allowed to visit my family only three times. Class began at four in the morning, and I would often study until midnight. He was committed to learning uh, the Quran, even though he couldn't read and write. Uh, At age six, he began memorizing the Quran, and over the next several years, uh, he committed it to memory. When I was 14, I enrolled in a secondary madrasa. I was happy to go deeper and deeper into Islam. By the time I was 21, my training was complete, and I was a mujahid, which means Islamic warrior. Ahmed was back home in his village waiting for his next assignment when his brother Nasir came for a visit. He brought his friend Jason with him, and it didn't take long for Ahmed to realize that Jason was a Christian. I called my teachers to tell them of my brother and his friend. They told me that my first assignment as a mujahid was to kill them both, and I agreed to do it. Ahmed's teacher sent some men to help him, and together they made a plan. Ahmed would lure Jason onto the back of his motorcycle and drive him to a place where the others waited in ambush. They would jump out, kill Jason, and then go back to the house to kill Nasir. Ahmed pretended to be very friendly with Jason and drove him around the village and told him some of the story of the village and the the mosque and the different things in the village. And then he, he, he took him up a dirt path into the mountains and they made a, a turn to a place where uh, Ahmed's friends had been lying in wait. But at the last minute, I looked at Jason. I don't know what it was, but something in his eyes made me abandon our plan. I quickly brought him back to our house and told Nasir that they must leave immediately or they would both be killed. Ahmed's teachers were not happy with him. They told him he couldn't be trusted to defend Islam if he couldn't even be trusted to kill one man. He begged for another chance, and they made a new plan. They sent me to the city where Nasir lived, and I worked to infiltrate his group of Christians. I stayed at the home of Nasir's friend, named Ted. For months, I learned the location of many Christian homes, and I even knew the place where they met together. Ahmed had enough information to bring down the Christian community in that city. 
But right before he outed Ted and Jason and the rest of them, Ahmed was relocated to join the Taliban fighting in Afghanistan. We were sent to the city to impose Sharia law. If women were seen out in public, we were to strike them six times with sticks. Anyone who was not observing the call to prayer was struck eight times. One day, Ahmed found a man walking during the call to prayer, and he whipped him 24 times as the man cried out that his wife was dying and he was only trying to find a midwife for her. I learned not to care, but there were two things that affected my heart. The first thing was the day I killed a baby girl. We had been sent to kill the leaders of a village, and we ended up killing everyone. I held this little girl in my arms, and she squeezed my hand as I plunged her with a knife. At that moment, my soul was torn. Not long after that, they captured a a Shiite Muslim uh, fighter, a jihadi, and uh, they brought him into their camp, and his hands were tied behind his back, and they put a burlap sack over his head, and they poured sand around him to absorb the blood. And then one of the Taliban put his knee into the back of the man while he was on his knees and grabbed his hair and stretched his neck back. And they told Ahmed, now, cut off his head. Ahmed said he took the sword that he had and he pressed it against the man's throat and he could hear the man breathing through the burlap sack, panting, panting, panting. And the men around the circle began chanting, Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar, God is great, God is great. My heart sank and I could not do it. I dropped the knife and ran. One of my friends chased me down and said that if I didn't kill the man, they would kill me. He convinced me to come back and hold the man while my friend slit his throat. After those two moments, something changed in me. That night, Ahmed ran away. He ran for days, and eventually he came to a village where people recognized him as Taliban and took care of him, giving him food and water and a place to stay. He told them that he wanted to get back to his home, so they put him on a train and paid his ticket. And on his way home, Ahmed fell asleep. He ended up sleeping for so long that he missed his stop, and he kept sleeping until the last stop on the train. When he got out, he found himself in the city where his brother lived. I had nowhere else to go, so I went to Ted's apartment. I told them that my heart was changing. My brother and his friend took care of me, and eventually, when I was feeling better, they sent me back home with a Bible to read. For a year, I studied it and wrote letters to Ted. And one night he had a dream. And in this dream, there was a voice uh, that came and spoke to him and uh, began to turn his heart away from his past. He said uh, in his dream, there was a light that came in through the window and the light seemed to have a face to it. It spoke to him and said, I'm sending three people to you. Listen to what they have to say. And he had this dream three times. And the next morning was when uh, Jason and Jason's friend Ted and Ahmed's brother all showed up in the village. It was on that trip in 1998 when Ted, Jason, and my brother Nasir 
baptize me in the name of Jesus. Since then, God has led my whole family out of the darkness and into the light. And Ahmed wasn't an anomaly. Beginning in the late 1990s, many Muslims in Western South Asia began to embrace the gospel. They were tired of war and killing, and they wanted peace and a new way of life. And like Ahmed, they found it in Jesus. But even though thousands of Muslims were turning to Christianity, this particular movement of the 90s had one very strange feature. Well, it was stunning as we began probing to find that it was almost entirely a men's movement. You know, there were quite possibly tens of thousands, if not more, of men who had come to faith in Christ. And even though the scripture and the gospel was changing their lives, they everyone brings baggage into their new life in Christ. And these guys, part of the baggage they brought was this uh, intense segregation of uh, the sexes. You know, men and women did not mingle. They were not friends. And when David says they weren't friends, he's being subtle. Women in Western South Asia were seen as property with little more value than livestock. Many husbands and wives didn't talk to each other or share meaningful connections. So even as men started to become Christians, it didn't even occur to them to tell their wives about Jesus. Or if it did, the thought was quickly dismissed until something interesting happened in 2008, almost by accident. Two missionary women rented out a retreat center in order to host a gathering with women in their area. They hired a translator to go with them, and that translator was Ahmed. It was a Catholic retreat center that was frequented by lepers, and so no one liked to hang out there, but it seemed like the perfect place to have a training for a group of a dozen women from a Muslim background. Well, Donna and Rachel arrived at the retreat center. The first day they were going to teach these women how to be better teachers so that they could teach their children uh, not only uh, literacy and reading, writing, arithmetic, but they could teach them the faith as well. But Donna and Rachel were very surprised when they were met, not by the dozen women who were planning to attend, but by their husbands. Now, these men were all new Christians from Muslim backgrounds. The men explained that they had thought about it and decided that they were not going to let their wives travel outside their village alone. So they came instead. They said they would let Donna and Rachel teach them, and then they'd go home and teach their wives. Well, Donna and Rachel were a little uh, disappointed, but they began trying to teach the men, and they noticed the men wouldn't look them in the eye. It was part of their custom and culture. They were not used to being taught by women, and they, they felt like it was offensive to look the women in the eyes. So the first day was just very awkward. As they sat down for lunch that first afternoon, everyone ate in silence and kept to themselves. Donna and Rachel wondered if this whole thing would be a complete disaster. But Ahmed, hoping to break the silence and ease the tension, asked a question. So he asked uh, Donna, he said, uh, should, uh, should men not beat their wives? And Donna thought he was joking. She smiled and looked at him and saw that his face was expressionless. And it was a very sincere question. And she said, no, of course you shouldn't beat your wives. It's, um, that's not what God wants you to do. And so uh, Ahmed just casually responded, well, what does Jesus say about this? What does the Bible say? 
And Donna realized she'd never been asked that question before. No one had ever said, should we not be beating our wives? And she told uh, Ahmed, she said, well, let me, let me search the scriptures and get back with you. So that night, Donna went back to her room and opened the Bible. She poured over it, looking for passages that could help Ahmed answer this question. And she texted scriptures to him as she found them. She just began to weep, thinking, what in the world is going to happen with these uh, new believers who don't even realize that they shouldn't be beating their spouses? And um, after sending several of these scripture passages and sleeping restlessly that night, Donna and Rachel went to the retreat center the next morning. And when they got there, they were met by Ahmed. And he was had sort of dark circles under his eyes. And he said, you know, none of us slept last night. She said, why not? And he said, we stayed up all night discussing those scriptures that you sent to us. And uh, Donna went into the classroom and all the men were already seated in their desks. And um, one of the men stood up and he, uh, he turned his head so that Donna couldn't see the tears that were glistening in his eyes. And he declared, I will not beat my wife. And then another man stood up and said, I will no longer beat my wife. And then another one said, I will not beat my wife and I will stop others from beating their wives. Something was beginning to change in that community. And this isn't like a subtle change. This isn't just a group of new believers learning how to treat their wives with a bit more kindness. Because when Ahmed talks about beating his wife, he isn't talking about occasionally flying off the handle. He talked about uh, how in his village, if, uh, if a wife uh, served the food late or it was cold or she talked back to her husband, he might stand up, grab her by the hair, drag her out of the house, and then into the village, through the streets, dragging her by her hair so that other men would leave their homes and join him. He said, we would take her down to the cemetery, dig a hole, throw her in, and bury her alive. Ahmed saw the shock in my face as he told me this, and he said, I have done these things. We have done these things. They are still happening today. That moment at the retreat center was significant for more than one reason. Because you have to remember, this is a society where women have no voice. If Donna and Rachel would have just given these men a list of reasons why they should stop beating their wives, the men wouldn't have listened. So what do you do in a society where the men have all the authority? you point to an even greater authority. And that's exactly what Donna did. Which is really what you want. You want the scripture to be the authority, not the outsider, not the missionary, not any other person. The, the, the scripture needs to be the authority in these people's lives so that when you're not there, when nobody else is there, they have the Bible. And when a group of people begin to see scripture as the authority, it starts to shift everything because they learn not only to go to God, but to actually obey what he says. And that becomes the hinge pin of change. They're getting the scripture into their hearts and lives. And 
seeing how the scripture transforms people is, is uh, just uh, amazing because it, it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword and it can help people uh, grow even when there's no outsider there they have the scriptures that can teach them and lead them after that retreat those dozen men turned into hundreds who made the commitment not only to stop beating their wives but to love them and hundreds of women began to encounter jesus through their transformed marriages those women started taking the gospel to other women and to corners of society where men couldn't go and the movement exploded. It's estimated that there are now tens of thousands of Christian communities in Western South Asia. You know, it was so sweet. Um, one of the things these guys said, it, it sounds so mundane, but it was so poignant. They said, when I leave my house in the morning, I will tell my wife where I'm going. And when I come home in the evening, I will tell her where I've been. Now that's radically different. We would look at that and, and you know, we say, well, of course, what's the big deal? Well, she was still homebound. It was still in their culture. She wasn't gonna be out meandering without his permission or without some sort of protection. But he was going out every day and he would never give her a word. He didn't feel any responsibility to tell his wife about his life, but that, subtle change was frankly turning her into a human being and as a human being potentially a, an equal and a partner it was just it was uh, it's it's again it's like the yeast in the dough it was going to grow and it was going to spread and the implications uh, over time uh, would be unimaginable for these people Sometimes there might be this temptation for us in the West to minimize the effects of the gospel as a good message that can improve your life. But for people in Western South Asia, the gospel isn't just an improvement. It's the difference between life and death, literally. It's estimated that there are now tens of thousands of Christian communities in Western South Asia. Communities with husbands and wives and ex-freedom fighters who really know just how good that gospel is. This season of Maverick was sponsored by Global Gates. They're dedicated to reaching the ends of the earth through global gateway cities. For more information or to get involved, visit globalgates.info. To help support the Maverick podcast, consider giving monthly at themaverickpodcast.com.